Okay. Mark chapter 6, we're going to read from verses 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So, Lord God, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and for correcting and for training in righteousness. I want to pray, Lord God, that you would do those things with us this morning. Train us in righteousness. Teach us, Lord. Correct us, Father. May your Holy Spirit, Lord, ignite and fuel in us, Lord, something that brings transformation. I pray we will not leave here the same, Lord, but be changed by the power of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, amongst uh, <coughs> other things, this is a pretty, pretty cool story. And we're heads on platters, if you like that kind of thing. Executions and devious plans and plots. I think this text really presents us with an opportunity to grab hold of some probably helpful, practical wisdom for everyday life. Now, this selection of verses, they're kind of like a side story to the main narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus. But like anything in the scriptures, there is a purpose for it. And the question then becomes, why has Mark decided to include it? Or maybe more appropriately, what is God revealing to us and teaching us through this window into the life and death of John the Baptist? So we're going to start by looking at the three main characters of this section. King Herod, John the Baptist, and Herodias. 
Now, when you hear the name Herod, you know, hopefully you have a few bells of familiarity. They might start ringing. You remember the, the narrative of the birth of Jesus when he is born. It's King Herod who seeks to eliminate the threat of this prophesied coming king. And he does so by ordering the murder of every male child under the age of two throughout Bethlehem and surrounding areas. Yes, that's right. He was a delightful chap. Herod the Great, as he was known then, was put in charge by the Roman Empire to rule over all of the Jewish provinces. He was aptly named King of the Jews. Now, interestingly, Herod was an Edomite, which if you trace that ancestry, it will lead you all the way back to a man called Esau. And in Jacob and Esau, as in the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob, the father of Israel, and Esau, the older brother who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. This is what God says about these two boys, Jacob and Esau, whilst they are in their mother's womb. He says, two nations are in your womb. The two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So there is actually quite a lot of ancestral history here. You know, these two nations in Israel and Edom that proceeded from Jacob and Esau are pretty much at each other's neck for a long time. It's like a prophesied sibling rivalry. So it's interesting that we arrive at a time when the older brother is ruling over the younger, the Edomite king over the nation of Israel. It makes you think there's a little bit more weight to Herod's efforts to eliminate the threats of the prophesied upcoming ruler when he, that he hears about through the wise men. By the time we get to the life and the, sorry, the time of Jesus' ministry and life of John the Baptist, Herod the Great, he's gone. He's passed on. And the kingdom rule has been passed over to three of his sons. Now, to make that a little bit more confusing, the kingdom provinces have been actually divided into four but only three sons are recorded as ruling. So it's like that one son ruled over two provinces, with the other two taking one province each. And that's where we are at with Herod Antipas, this king who ruled over the province of Galilee and Perea, and the same king that we meet in Mark chapter 6. That's King Herod. The name Herod really remains out of respect of the father. And that generation of rulers is known throughout history as the Herodian dynasty. So Antipas is the actual name of Herod the Great's son. Matthew calls him Herod the Tetrarch. And for those who know you Greek, tetra means four. Okay, because Antipas was ruling over one of the four provinces which makes up the kingdom that Herod the Great had responsibility for. So there you go, that's a bit of, if you like history, a bit of fun history. Now, of course, the other main character is John the Baptist. And when I think of John, I kind of think of a grizzly bear hanging out in New York. A bit of a wild card amongst civilized people. And despite his kind of Bear grills type pers pers persona, John was actually highly regarded by the Jewish people as a prophet. And Jesus, he takes a, a whole step further and says, not only, is a John not only is John a prophet... But in Matthew 11, Jesus declares John to be the fulfillment of the return of Elijah. Now, John's declaration to the Jewish people was that he was preparing the way 
for the Lord. He says in Matthew 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The ministry of John was in preparing hearts through baptism of repentance for the arrival of Jesus, that the people might be ready to receive him. Now, the thing about Elijah is that this kind of major prophet in Israel's history had been taken up to heaven by God before death. Two kings tell us that Elijah, I mean, how do you want to go? I mean, Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven through chariots of fire. That's pretty cool. And it's another prophet, really, in Scripture that prophesies the return of Elijah. Malachi 4.5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So John comes as this forerunner to Jesus. If he was musical, no doubt he would be a trumpet player because he comes to loudly announce the coming of the Lord. A bear in the city and a bear that doesn't have a problem with growling at a few people, one of them being Herod Antipas, which leads us nicely onto our next character. Enter Herodias. Now, Herodias was the wife of Herod Antipas's half-brother, Philip. It's all really good period drama stuff. She gets a divorce from Philip, and Herod Antipas divorces his wife, all very intentional in order that Antipas and Herodias can marry each other. Now, John, the Baptist, our grizzly bear in New York, makes a pretty loud growl about this, highlighting God's plan for good marriage and that marrying your half-brother's wife is probably not in it. So Herodias takes quite a strong disliking to our John and quite cunningly manipulates a narrative that leads to John's execution. So that's King Herod, John the Baptist, and Herodias our three main characters from the text. Okay, let's, let's try and pick up the context now, fill the picture in, see if we can draw out some helpful things for us to learn and apply. Okay, so firstly, this story that we've just read, this account of John the Baptist's death is retrospective. It's looking back on something that's already happened. Because in the writer to the Gospels of Mark, it's present-day narrative. Okay, it's writing it as it happens. But here, it's looking back and reflecting back. But... It starts in verse 14 with the present fame of Jesus. That's the baseline. Scripture tells us that Jesus' name had become known. So well known that it reached the ears of King Herod Antipas. And the Jews, they're debating who this Jesus was. And all of them were pretty much agreed that Jesus was at least a prophet. But what kind of prophet was he? Was he a prophet like the prophets of old? Was he a prophet of old who had returned? Was he Elijah? Or was he John the Baptist, risen from the dead? Now, in hearing this, Herod, he takes out his tenor and he puts his money on the table and he immediately makes a connection between Jesus and John the Baptist. And his conviction is shared with that great quote from verse 16. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, contextually, I want to speak into that. And I say the response, I would say the response from King Herod is that of sort of panic stations. He's jumpy, to say the least. And the reason behind his conclusion about 
Jesus is, I believe, connected to his guilt regarding John. Now, as an Edomite ruler, ruling over Israelites, I don't think Antipas would have been very fond of the Jews. And with his dad's track record of violence, I'm reasonably confident that uh, this Herod would have had no problems with execution of people in his province. So why would Herod feel guilty about John? Why would this descendant of Esau feel bad about ordering the execution of this descendant of Jacob? Well, I think there's probably enough evidence to suggest there is relationship there. Maybe, stretch a little bit further, maybe even friendship. He certainly carries a respect for John. And I do believe that to an extent that the respect is reciprocated. It says in verse 20 that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous man and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. It also says upon Herodias' request to execute John that the king was exceedingly sorry because this was something that he didn't want to happen. He had allowed John, he could have cut John off quite early, but he had allowed John to speak into his life and highlight God's holy expectations, particularly when it came to his marriage situation. And it's really through Herodias that John ends up in prison anyway prior to execution, as she is not liking what John is preaching and bends the arm of the king to have him locked up. So it doesn't surprise me that Herod connects Jesus to John the Baptist because I think he feels a level of guilt and I think he's clearly super sensitive about it with a potential level of fear that John's come back to bring about some form of justice for his wrongful termination. So what do we learn from this? Because I think there is something that we can learn from the behavior of Herod I think there's something that we can learn from the behavior of John. And I think there is something we can learn from the behavior of Herodias. Let's start with Herod. Despite Herod's obvious morality issues, the standout moment for me is when he gives his oath. I don't know if anyone remembers the story of Jethar from the book of Judges. It's not usually the first one you read, is it, on the, on the Monday morning, is it? Jephthah, this guy was, he was like a mighty warrior from God who God raises up to rescue Israel from the hand of their enemies. Now later in that account, Jephthah, he makes a vow to God that goes like this. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So, God gives Jephthah a mighty victory in battle against the Ammonites, and upon his return, who comes out to greet him from his home? But his daughter and his only child. Jephthah was a mighty man who made a ridiculous oath without really thinking through the consequences. Herod, in the same manner, caught up in the moment he also makes a ridiculous oath to the daughter of Herodias. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Clever Herodias. She knew exactly how to play that one. Foolish Herod 
unwilling to look weak in the presence of his guests and his wife, followed through on his commitment and executed someone he may not have agreed with, but someone he respected. The moral of the story is, in the heat of the moment, be mindful of decisions and commitments you make. In doing so, you might just lose something you highly value. The fruit of the Spirit at work in those who belong to Christ is self-control. And the book of James tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So in those moments, let us learn from these guys, be quick to hold our tongue, and to ask God for wisdom that we may not foolishly commit to something that may unnecessarily cost us something of great value and of worth. Something we can learn from John. I definitely think John has a uh, grizzly bear then approach to ministry. In calling people to repentance and to baptism and clearly calling out unholy activity. Anyone know someone like John who speaks into your life like that? Sometimes we need guys, don't we, in our lives who are willing to call it out like John does. But I do think in this case that the king's emotional response to the prospect of John's execution shows something of his respect for John and his willingness to hear him out on matters of life. You know, sometimes we're going to need to just call it out in others. Behavior that displeases God, ways that do not reflect the heart and attitudes of Christ. But I do believe that that is going to be best received in a context of mutual respect. That I respect you enough to speak into my life as you may expect, respect me enough to speak into your life. That at the right time, in the right moment, there may be a need to just call something out, out of love for God and love for you. And I think that's best received in relationship, through friendship or just mutual respect. So be mindful of when you are thinking about calling something out in someone. Remember the grace of God upon you. Remember the grace of God upon them but also speak truth in love for their benefit and blessing. <laughs> and it's something we can learn from Herodias. Okay, so I kind of like, weirdly, I, she demonstrates creative means to get what she wants. You know, in one way, you kind of want to give her credit for her cunning ability to get things done. However, behind the scene, operations to manipulate or bend a situation into your favor clearly doesn't really speak of a godly heart or attitude to those around us. Now, in one way, we can excuse Herodias because she probably doesn't know much better, but for us as Christians, we do need to be mindful about how we go about our business, how we relate to one another, how we serve one another, how we honor one another, how we bless one another so we don't get caught into that trap of trying to steer, direct, or persuade from the background. I guess the counter to that behavior is to look to Jesus in the way that we honor a relationship. The private moments for Jesus are often governed by a desire to be with his heavenly father. And out of that time, he is led with compassion from place to place to serve, to bless, to teach, to bring light into darkness. And the more we get with Jesus in those behind-the-scene moments, the less likely we are to bring something that is counter to the heart of God towards the lost and to his people. Bring something that is better out of the private 
into the public. So, bringing it back to the present with Jesus. In the cosmic fight between light and darkness, between God and Satan, there was a prophecy written in the book of Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and he will strike your heel. This is right at the beginning of the scriptures when it all went pitong for man. This was written as a springboard of hope in the midst of a tragic moment for mankind. That darkness, for a moment, would strike the heel of the world. That it would be painful. That there was a time coming, though. But, I like that, those buts. But there was a time coming when light would come and completely and utterly deliver a crushing blow and disperse darkness for all time. Like the time of Herod, when the line of Esau was ruling over the line of Jacob, this was ever but a temporary thing. The prophecy pointed to the time when the older would serve the younger. So this was only a temporary moment of darkness over light, despite what Herod the Great might have thought. Even his attempts to crush it at conception were futile. In a similar way, at the cross, the death of Jesus felt like a huge victory to Satan and to the darkness that followed him. Yet it was but a bite to the heel. And though painful at the time, in his resurrection, Jesus dealt a crushing blow to the head of Satan that he would never recover from and would spell the end for all darkness because the greater light had come into the world and the darkness could not overcome it. I want to share that that is the reality for all those who follow Jesus. The things at this time may feel like darkness is gaining ground. Life is particularly tough. Maybe life is feeling painful. And if that's you this morning, you know, I'm going to ask, you know, take the opportunity to pray with you after the message. But I want you to take heart because that's not the end of the story. In the scheme of the cosmic and in the scheme of the eternal life you have with Christ, this is but a bite to the heel. At the cross, Jesus won a victory for you that will punish the darkness and pain into a place of submission for all time. In him, that hope is real and his victory is great. Esau certainly served his younger brother Darkness will certainly submit and serve the light. Such is the victory that is yours in Christ. So in practice, my encouragement to you is let us be wise in our commitments. Let our yes be yes and our no be no, but also give due consideration what you're actually saying yes to and what you're saying no to. Speak truth. Speak truth in love. And don't be afraid to call something out in your brother or sister's life. However, be mindful to do it out of relationship and mutual respect. And let us seek to be the fragrance of Christ in behavior toward one another that we may not fall into the trap of trying to coordinate things in an unhealthy way behind the scenes. And lastly, let us remember the hope and ultimate victory that we have in Christ. Though at times there are battles, 
the war has already been won. Battles are temporary, but victory in Christ is for all time. Should we stand together? I invite the team to come lead us in worship. So we're going to worship and we're going to take bread and wine together as part of our worship. But uh, my encouragement to you as we spend time in worship together is just don't, don't be in a quick rush to uh, pour out to the table, but that we would stop and we would consider the body that was broken and the blood that was shed in a moment that felt that darkness had taken a grip, it was a but, just a bite to the heel. In the moment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a fatal blow was delivered to Satan and darkness. You may be in a time of battle and hardship. But it is just a bite to the heel. And I believe God wants to reaffirm to you, if that's you this morning, that he will see you through the season and will lead you through to the other side. For that is your great shepherd. So we're going to worship. We're going to give our attention to him. Just lift our eyes to the victory that we have in Christ. Thank him that the war has been won. (laughs) And the cost has secured you something precious for all eternity. We have much to be thankful for, much to offer this world. And um, if that is you in terms of just hardship and challenge and a bit of pain, as we're worshiping, I'd like you to come forward, we'll pray. Before you take bread and wine, Come and be prayed for, prayed with. And um, let's do that bit of journey together as part of our worship, as part of our offering. Because I do believe God wants to seal that in your heart, reaffirm to you, he's with you. He's with you. It's just a season. So Lord God, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the bread and for the wine. We want to... take that opportunity as believers to remember you if you're not a believer this morning you don't have to take part okay it's for those people who have chosen to follow Jesus and, and it's a tradition of remembrance for us as a church family Lord God we just invite you to come and be with us and move among us as we honour you would you touch our hearts? And as we worship, if there's anyone who brings 
things they have a, a prophetic word or an encouragement or or testimony or scripture to bring blessing and to build up the body of Christ. Let me encourage you, you know, as part of our worship, bring that. Be, be encouraged to bring that. Come see me. And we'll bring that. Thank you, Lord, for, for your word.